Right. All right. Well, we are in the process at Vintage of being a people who are focusing on Jesus first. It's right behind me on the walls, right here on the screens on both sides. And, and the idea is for each of us as individuals, uh, as the church together as a whole, I felt from, from the end of last year that God is calling us to, to make Jesus first in every area of life. This means that Jesus, and these are important words we've been using. When I think about Jesus being first, that means that Jesus is priority in our lives. He has preeminence. And that Jesus is the winner over all competing interests in our personal lives and our corporate church life. That's actually really important. I feel like that third piece, so priority, preeminence, but I feel like even as I'm prepping, that this idea of recognizing that there are competing interests in your life for God's, for allegiance and for God's place. Like that in each of you, there are competing interests, things that are calling to you, things that are drawing to you, things that may be sinful, things that may not be sinful, but just things that act as distractions that, that, that may be pushing or for sure pushing into your life to be a competing interest for preeminence and priority in your life. And this is a season where we're naming those and then putting Jesus first and letting him and making sure that he's the winner over all of these things in our life. And so what we've talked about the last several weeks is the actions then, or the actions that we give ourselves to that help us to keep Jesus first. So like, for example, you come to church on Sunday morning to be with one another, but I believe you come because you see it as an act that helps you to keep Jesus first in your life. When we talk about these actions that we give ourselves to, our spiritual disciplines, or what I've been calling Jesus first arrows that we can pull out of our quiver at any time, shoot them, and it will put us into God's presence, and in being in his presence, we will be transformed, and these actions will help keep Jesus first in our lives, right? You recognize that there's no way that you can put anything first in your life unless there's some intentional pursuit of it. And these are the actions that we can give ourselves to. I'm just calling them spiritual arrows in our quiver that at any time, there's multiple, literally I've got a book that I would love to share with you. It's like 50 disciplines, 50 practices, 50 arrows that you can pull out at any time and they're all equal in nature. You can shoot any of them and they will put you into the presence of God where you can be transformed and it'll help you keep Jesus first. So far, so far we've talked about reading scripture. Mike talked about that, reading scripture. We talked about silence and solitude. And then last week we spoke about the arrow that I called practicing the presence of Jesus. And if you've missed any of these, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. I will tell you on my side, for when Mike spoke, it was an important week for me. And I will tell you in my prep for the last three weeks, for these three messages that I've been speaking on, these arrows we're pulling out, they have been transformative. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I, mean, I literally was sitting down this week with God and just processing how these practices, and I've actually engaged all of them. The beautiful thing is I've actually engaged all of them in one sitting kind of all at the same time. We separate them systematically, but they all actually overlap in some form or fashion. And I will can tell you honestly that my spiritual life has 
felt transformed and been transformed in a way that was unexpected because I practiced these in some form or fashion, but giving myself with greater diligence and greater intentionality with a greater pursuit of them in this season has been life-changing. I believe as you focus on them, study and give yourself to them, I really do believe it will be transformative. It will be transformative, and I encourage you to go back. Just go to YouTube, type in Vintage 242 Church, and you can listen to all of the messages. So in this this morning as we continue, I want to talk about our next discipline or the next arrow you can put into your quiver and pull out at any time. And I've already told you what it is this morning. It is the spiritual arrow of worship. Worship. Now, it's in this place of, of worship I recognize that when I say that word, most everyone, at least in our context, might first go to thinking about the first 20 to 25 minutes of our Sunday morning services, right? People naturally just think about singing. And across the nation and across the world, we named that time that we just did before Natalie got up and wowed us with her announcements, right? We call it worship. And so when I say worship, that's what you think. That's the context in which you give it. And you think about singing as worship. And I will tell you this. Singing, singing to Jesus and placing him first absolutely is one expression of worship. But in and of itself, it, not, it is not the definition of worship. In fact, it's just one, to be honest with you, fairly small act of worship in a very big bucket, right, bucket of activities and actions that we can give ourselves to that are worship. So my invitation for you today as we begin is to take singing, right, take singing off of the, off, out of your mind of the old, as the definition of worship and just put it over here in a bucket with other things that can be worshipped this morning. And to help you to define what worship is, I'm just going to go ahead, and Josh, you can go ahead and throw it up there. I'm going to throw up three definitions that speak to an understanding of just what worship is. Now, the Greek word, the Greek word for worship in the New Testament is pro, uh, proskuneo, 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 P-R-O-S-K-Y-N-E-O, proskuneo, and it literally is the first definition. To lie down prostrate before one that is worthy to be worshipped. So prostrate, face down, don't say prostate, that'd be really awkward. I've done it before in when I'm preaching, it's always funny. Gets a good laugh, right? It involves an attitude of humility for the person that's bowing. So I look at someone and go, they are greater than I am, right? They are bigger, they're more important, they are bigger than I am, right? It is an action word. It's not just not an emotion, but an immediate response in the presence of deity. And so we think about the worship as I come before someone or something that's worthy of worship and I recognize as greater than I am in honor of it by action, not based out of. Listen, this is really important. I don't lay prostrate because I feel like I need to. I fall prostrate because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes an emotion's attached to it, but that is not this word here. I mean, again, go back and study it. It's not an emotion that leads me. It is a conscious, active understanding, a conviction that I know to be true, so I lie down, right? I recognize, I see it, I know, and I lie down, right? So it's this place. It's not an emotion. It's an immediate response. But the second definition, again, and all these kind of definitely overlap. Make sure you see them overlapping. 
giving allegiance to the who or what we place first in our lives and what is important. Because there are lots of what's in the world that people bow down to, money being one of them. We'll talk about it later. Giving allegiance to the who or the what we place first in our lives, the who or what we value most. This is really important. Because in your life, it's not just God's worthy of worship, but there are things in your life that you so deem as important that they actually get placed first in your life and you value them more than anything else. For a lot of people in our culture, it's success, and they bow down and they worship success, and they find their personal value, and they find value in life, their primary value in the success that they find. The third piece, the action that we undertake. There's the word action again. We undertake to acknowledge who or what we place first in our lives. So again, just look at all of those slowly without me reading them. recognizing their place as it relates to worship and something that's first, something that has the greatest value, something that we acknowledge and give allegiance to as being most important. It's the thing that maybe we bow down to. Maybe it's the thing that we worship. Or maybe it's the the thing that we say, this is where I find my greatest value. This is what's first in my life. So in all of these definitions, we see that worship is something we bow down to. It has the greatest value in our life. It's a named thing that's first. Now, when we talk about worship, it's important to know primarily it is a use. It's, it's a word used in religion, right? It's usually most talked about uh, as an adoration of a specific god of some sort, whether it's in Christian religion, Jewish, Hinduism, Buddhism across the way, talking about literally some deity that we worship. It's used again and again for us in Scripture. We see this word worship that speaks to our heart and our body posture towards God. Probably in the Old Testament, the the most expressive Scripture around worship of what it is that teaches us is what I read this morning from Psalm 95. It's what's seen in the Old Testament is really a definition and a, and a foundation for worship and what it is, how you do it. So I'm going to go back and read it. I read it earlier because it's a beautiful moment. I want to read it now for the purpose of looking at and allowing it to sink in. So on the screen, you can follow along. David comes and talking again about worship. Says, Come, let's sing, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments. So we see that what we did this morning, according to David here in the first three verses, it is worship, right? It's an expression in our singing and placing God first in the first two verses, excuse me. He says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hands are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is says, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Again, you could spend a lot of time talking about mind, will, and emotions, the what and the who and the when of this. But I want to, what I want you to see in here is the three definitions being expressed just in these seven verses. They see their God as one worthy to be worshipped, right? They see their God. We put capital G there because we believe he is the one God. But they see their God as the one worthy to be worshipped. So there's this place of adoration. 
they choose as an action to revere him and to bow down to him. They give him allegiance as they bow down. He is their God. He is the one who is first in their lives. So that's the pieces. Let's go back and read it. It's not rocket science as you read through these pieces of expressing and their song and David's song, like this song about how great he is and how majestic he is, right? He's a great king above all gods. His hands and in his hands are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains. They're just speaking, right? Just this poetic language to speak the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the greatness of the God that they worship. But in these verses, we also see that worship is expressed in different ways. I'm going to name some things. Let's see if you can go through and remember it, or you can see it as you're looking at the words on the screen. First, they do it in singing in the first couple of verses. Second, they do it in shouting to God. Three, they give thanks to him. Fourth, they play instruments for God as an expression of worship. Then they kneel down. That's worship before God. They kneel down to worship. They, so there's kneeling down, but then there's bowing down. So the kneel down is I get on my knees. The bowing down is I put my face on the ground, prostrate. Lord, so I, I kneel, and then I go to the next step of bowing. This is an expression of worship. They give in this, they, they, um, they give him allegiance. They come and say, you're first, you're God, and they place him first. He's, again, all of these are some act or expression of worship, that what I want you to hear me say as we come in and talk about worship, and you think off the screen now, Josh, is that worship for us is not just a single act. It is, and this is important. I should have put this on the screen, but I didn't, so I apologize. So I want you to listen. It is any act we do where we acknowledge something or someone as priority, as first, and as having the greatest value in our lives. It is any act we do where we acknowledge something or someone as the priority of our life, as being first, and as having the greatest value in our lives. This is the nature of worship. Here in Psalm 95, it is God. It is God who is the object of worship. And we're going to look in a second and recognize there can be other things that we worship. But as it relates to anything that we can do in worship, I'm going to tell you a moment for me that was an expression of personal worship that God brings me back to on a, on a fairly regular basis mentally. Back when I don't know, right after college, I was, I, was work, I was living in Athens. I was working for my dad over in Gainesville, and six days a week I would drive back and forth, right? And so this day was just one of those long days, right? I, I'm driving home well after dark. I'd gotten up at like 4 a.m. that day to get there. I was coming home at 9. I mean, it was just like I was I was 23-year-old and vigorous in life and deathly tired, right? And so I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to see, say yo-yo to my roommates and then head down to my bed and just go to bed. Right? That's what I wanted to do. And so I'm driving. I'm about a mile, literally one mile outside the city limits of Athens on Jefferson Highway coming from, from, coming from 85, right? And I, and I look in the, I look, and here on the right I see a car little cattywampus like this, right? So I know one of the tires is missing. And I'm driving, you know, I'm probably driving a little to speed limit, maybe like 80 and a 55. I have no idea. Kids, don't drive that fast. No, I don't know how fast I was going, but I was ready to get home, right? And as, I, as I'm pulling up and, and I look to the right, I see the car, but sitting right behind the right bumper 
on the ground with his hand like this is just an older man somewhere in between his like 70s and 90s. I don't know, right? Life had been rough. And, I'm, and, and, and sitting in front of him was a, was a tire just sitting there. And he's just like this staring at it. Now, here's the thing in the moment, y'all. I'm driving probably realistically 70. And, and in that, you know how you just have like, a myriad of thoughts that happen just like this, that's what happened in the moment. And here are the thoughts that I had in the moment. Wow, it's 9 o'clock. And I'm, I'm literally like, God, and in some form, I'm just deathly tired. I do not want to stop and help this man. I just want to get home. God, I'm sure you can send somebody else. I'm sure you can send somebody else. And I get about 50 yards, right? I get about 50 yards down, and I sense the Lord saying, I'm first, and you need to obey. And so I worshiped him. I looked in my rearview mirror, nobody coming for miles, and I hit my brakes as hard as I could. Now about 100 and 150 yards past him, I stick it in reverse because I'm a really good reverse driver, and I drive back as fast as I can, 150 yards, all the way back. I park right in front of his car. I get out and say, hey, brother, what's going on? Oh, man. I blew my tire. I went to get my spare, and it was completely flat. I said, bro, I'm here for you. I said, hop in my truck. I'll just throw your tire in the back. There's a golden gallon, whatever it's called, golden pantry just down the road here. I'll drive down while you're sitting in the truck enjoying music. Figure out what you listen to, man. I will fill your tire up. I'll come back. I'll put it on for you, and then you can drive home. So we did, man. We drove. He starts talking. He gets really excited by this point. I don't know what happened. Like, his demeanor changed, right? And so we drive down the road. We go to the golden gallon. I pull out the tire. He's just sitting in there. Doesn't even think to get out and help me. I'm fine, right? Just stick that tire in there, fill it up with air, get it to where it's going, like, bouncing. This is great. I go back, put it on. It was like a Cutlass Oldsmobile 88. I don't know what year it was. Like a 70s model. I have no idea. I stick it on that car. He's like, thanks, man. Just gets his car and drives off, right? (laughs) Here's the deal. In that moment, I had to determine, is my need for rest or Jesus the Lord of my life? Am I the Lord of my life or is Jesus? Am I worshiping comfort in the moment, or am I worshiping Jesus? Am I going to bow down, be allegiant to him, surrender my life and all of my actions, and say, you're God and I'm not. I submit to your will, and I will love you now by loving your neighbor as an act, or loving my neighbor as an act of worship. And I did. And y'all, it was amazing. It was painful. The whole experience was difficult, right? The laying it down, the actually picking up the tire. I'm scrawny. I'm not that big. I'm ugh, getting all dirty. I mean, you know, I'm getting it. It's not an easy moment. But God was worshipped. I came into his presence, and I got into my car changed and transformed because I had submitted to him, given my allegiance to him. And here's the point of telling the story. It's not to say, wow, Steve's really great. Here's the point. Every, it's like every week Jesus brings me back to that moment. And what's ever going on in my life saying, is this the day, Steve, that you will die once again as a living sacrifice? 
Christ before me, a spiritual act of worship, holy and pleasing to me, just like you did for me that day with that man. Will you do it again today? And every day I have to choose to lay prostrate before God. I don't just worship because I worshiped 20-something years ago, and now I'm good to go. It's a decision every single day. A living sacrifice is what Romans says. Every day I'm living to make a decision to surrender myself, to lay prostrate before God in all of my actions and all of my will. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Someone say amen to that because that's life. Worship is not just a single act. It's something we choose every day. And it's not usually easy, to be honest with you. A story I've been focused on this week that I believe paints a picture of a unique expression of three different types of worship in one story in seven verses is found in John 12. You can turn with me. We're going to look at these three different people this morning, kind of look at their story of worship. Again, just seeing different expressions of worship in the moment. John 12, starting in verse 1, going through verse 8. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining the table with Jesus. Then Mary took about, took a, took about a, a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Again, worship. The first expression of worship in this moment for me is a moment of redemption of what I see for Martha. You remember Luke chapter 10, Jesus comes into their house, and she gets upset and anxious about many things as she's going about and serving Jesus and serving the disciples. She's angry with Jesus for not making Mary get up. She's frustrated with Mary. And so in the moment she is serving, she's serving, but it was not worship. Because she was focused on her own self and she was focused on her frustrations, right? She was focused on whatever it was that was worship, whether it was the, the cultural the cultural thing. I have no idea exactly what she was worshiping. You can figure it out. But she was not worshiping Jesus in her hospitality and her service. And Jesus invited her. It wasn't necessarily as much a correction as an invitation out of her anxiety and her frustration and her tension. It was an invitation into worship and into her presence into his presence. And I believe here, again, this is me kind of reading into this, that John is naming Martha coming and serving in the moment because, in a sense, it's a story of redemption for her. I could be wrong, it's my opinion, but he's coming and naming, and I see it as Martha is coming in the moment as an act of worship. I can only imagine what's going through Martha's mind. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They're holding a dinner in his honor. Jesus comes in. People come in. Crowds are outside and pushing on every single side, right? And they're, and they're there, and I can just imagine in the moment the joy and the elation and the revelation of who Jesus is, because what happened was with Lazarus was something that only God could do. 
I think it was a moment of her recognizing. I believe in this moment that worship for her, worship for her was in the service. It was in coming and saying, I have placed Jesus first. He is priority. He is preeminent. I'm laying myself down to this worship of service and of hospitality because that's the gift that I bring. It's how God's designed me. I have the spiritual gift of helps and of hospitality and of service. I believe she is worshiping with her eyes focused on Jesus to serve in the moment. And I see it as a story of redemption. The second expression of worship is the center of this whole section of Scripture. Mary worshiping through kneeling down, pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and washing them with her hair. Again, so much that could be talked about here. I, I spent literally all week in John 12, these first eight verses. It's the only thing that I read all week. I stayed there. I was there for an hour every day, not trying to prepare a sermon, but just to be with Jesus. It was powerful. I loved it. And so it's some of the thoughts that I had, and you can have your own, but some of the thoughts and questions I prayed into, I asked the Lord about just these things I was thinking about. I was like thinking about this idea of her coming and pulling her hair down. Like, Jesus, listen, Jewish women never take their hair down in public. It's offensive, something only a scandalous woman would do. But Mary was willing to be embarrassed. She was willing to be ridiculed. All that mattered was worshiping Jesus. I think about David, David dancing before the procession who was taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And when he was mocked for doing it actually by his own wife, he looked at her and said, I'll become even more undignified than this. Right. The idea is it all that matters is Jesus. All that matters is no one around me except what he thinks. He's the audience that I live for. I'm not worried about other people's thoughts. I'm not worried about the things they're thinking about. I will become, listen, I am fully committed to him. All that matters to God. I started thinking about Mary being a human being like you and like me. And I don't know about you, but when, I, when God asked me to do things as worship to him, it is hard. And especially when he calls me to do things in a public setting where I have to make my voice known or say something or to do something that may be uncomfortable, something along these lines. I've never done that. My hair's too short, but you know what I'm getting at. Something that's expressive in nature, whether it's like to get up and jump up and down, whether it's to stand on a chair, right? Whatever it may be to say, God, this is an expression of my worship. And I don't know about you, but when I get into those places of extravagant acts of worship, there's a voice that always visits me. It's the voice of fear. It's that little voice saying, hey, this is just a little too much. It's going to make people uncomfortable. The voice that says, Steve, this is a little too embarrassing. You can just, you don't have, like, you know theologically that God understands your heart. You don't have to do the act and the expression. God understands, right? That little voice, whether it's my own logic, whether it's the enemy, doesn't really matter. It's the similar voice saying, you don't have to do this. You don't have to bow down. You do what's most comfortable. And I have to imagine that Mary, being a human being like you and like me, had a similar voice because this was, quote, unquote, dangerous. It was dangerous. It was scandalous. Our moments of greatest obedience always come with hesitation and pushback. Worship is a death to self. It's a true humbling, a choosing of Jesus over my own comfort. Third thing, I just imagine the heart of thankfulness, the heart of joy that must have led her to such an incredible act of worship. I literally thought about what it looked like the moment that Mary and Martha watched Jesus walk through the door to their house. 
and the excitement that had to be on Lazarus's face, where they had literally thought that Lazarus was dead and they had lost their brother, to now they have him in his presence. And I began to think, what must, what must that have been like? What must that have felt like? What must have birthed inside of her heart and in the moment, I can only imagine Mary's heart bursting with the thoughts, what can I do that's extraordinary to express my love and my gratitude? I, I just wonder about Mary's personality, and I wonder if she's one of those that, like, whatever it is she does is just larger than life, right? That seemingly is who she is. She's just always kind of bubbly and always doing something and always big and always expressive, right? You've been around people like that. Like, Martha's just that. She's like, that's done by the book, and I'm good, right? And it was an act of worship, and it pleased the Father. But Mary is just one of those extraordinary people. It's just larger than life and bigger things, and each of them are equal in God's eyes, so they have their own personalities, right? It's important. I just love putting personalities to Bible characters, right? Just wondering who they were, and I think she's coming. What can I do to, as an extraordinary, extraordinary expression of love and gratitude to the Father. I just love him so much. I, I want him and I want everyone at the house to know that I just love Jesus. He's first. He's worthy of my worship. Again, I want you to see here, worship is not singing, but it's bowing down and washing Jesus' feet. For Martha, it would have been a heart devoted to Jesus and serving with a gift of hospitality in the moment. And I love, though, with, with, with John. John says something, says something here in these eight verses. He says this. He says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You may or may not know this, but many of John's statements in his gospel intentionally have two meanings. One which lies on the surface, right? One which lies on the surface and one which is underneath. The idea that to some of John's statements there's a double meaning. So I found myself, I was on Wednesday morning, I'm going over this, and I read that, and it just jumped out at me. And I literally thought, I wonder if this is one of those moments of double meaning that John wants to say, yeah, the room smelled really great, guys. But there was something deeper than that. So I said, well, I'm going to go see what, what scholars say. I'm going to go read some of these pieces, right? And it was fascinating because many of the church fathers and many scholars, they see a double meaning here. They have taken it to mean that the whole of the church was filled with the sweet memory of Mary's worship. That wherever she went, historically in stories for the rest of her life, her story of worship when it was told would fill the room where it was told with the fragrance of worship and the fragrance of who Jesus is. And we would see it and it would just cause us to want to worship. It would cause us to feel more alive. Her testimony, her action would be beautiful for all of us. This is on the screen. This is an unknown person who said this, but I loved it. It says, a lovely deed, a lovely deed becomes the possession, excuse me, becomes the possession of the whole world and adds to the beauty of life in general something which time can't ever take away. Parents. I want you all to hear me. In here we sing. It's our expression of worship. If you have elementary age kids, they're in here with you. Your expressive act of worship will be a timeless deed that at some point your children will watch and be changed because they watch you. It is a gift. It's a calling. But here's the beautiful thing. 
For those of you who don't have kids in here, the child next to you, as you express worship to God and extravagance, they will watch you. It will be a timeless deed, and they will be changed by it. Worship, no matter what it is, whether it's singing or whether it's actions that we give ourselves to, because he is first and we're obeying him, we're bowing down in reverence to him and placing authority, whatever those are, they change us. But the last picture of worship, and it's true worship, is, is Judas. It's a true worship of money. Judas makes a direct spiritual attack on Mary, saying she's been wasteful, that the perfume could have been sold, the money given to the poor. Judas's intent, it sounds noble. His logic seems on point. Judas seems to be right in the moment. But Jesus sees right through his pretense. He sees his true heart motive, and he sees his divided heart. He is divided because on one side, he claims Jesus in his words. Why did he say that about money to the poor as it relates to everybody else around him? He said it the way he said it because he wanted to recognize Jesus loves the poor. And when we help the poor, it's an act of worship and obedience to him because he wants us to give money so that the poor can be taken care of with the money that we give. It's an expression of choosing Jesus first, and he's doing it with his mouth. But Jesus sees his heart. Claims Jesus, but his heart worship, what he found his greatest value in, what he was willing to backstab for in the end with Jesus, because you see it later, like three verses later, where he betrays Jesus, what he was willing to badmouth for, what he, is, what he puts first in his life was money. He claimed Jesus with his mouth, but worshipped money with his heart. Do you know anyone who's ever done that? That's where we're going to end at least the story this morning. Two stories of true worship of Jesus with very different expressions. In one story of, excuse me, one story of true worship of money. The reality is all worship that we give to whatever we're worshiping is always true. It's always true. We have to be honest with what it is. You have to be honest with what it is. You have to be honest about, I know I'm saying Jesus with my lips, but I wonder where my heart is if I'm being completely honest in the moment. Listen, we are always worshiping something. Sin is simply finding more value in something than we find in God in the moment or in a season. In that moment, then we are worshiping whatever that something is. We may name God with our lips, but our heart, listen, but our heart betrays him by putting something else first. And in those moments, in those moments, we find more value in the something else with our actions. And we have to turn, in that moment, we turn from God and we put something else first. Worship is an arrow that can either bring us closer to Jesus or take us farther away. The invitation today is simple. Number one, it's on the screen. The invitation is simple. Wake up and be honest with God about your worship. Wake up and be honest about what you worship. And number two, with your heart and actions, make Jesus first. We can truly worship anything. We can truly worship anyone. We can say it as God with our lips, but our heart may be in worship of something else. A list of things that I just briefly wrote down that I know in my life I've sometimes placed on the altar and we've worshipped before Jesus. Success. Comfort. Sometimes my children. Sometimes I've worshipped money. Sometimes I've worshipped friendships themselves. Sometimes I've worshipped having influence. Maybe if you struggle with rejection, 
It's the idea of influence or being known. Being known, my name mattering, someone knowing me, be, being friends with a specific person. And the list can go on and on and on. The question for us this morning is with our arrow of worship and our quiver, you have to determine what you're worshiping. You have to determine honestly where your heart is and recognizing it isn't just something I choose once. It's something that I give myself to again and again as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as a spiritual act of worship saying every day, I know there are so many other interests that are coming after my time and my passions, coming after my allegiance. And God, I want to, in that quiver, I can pull up the arrow of worship and it's going to lead me to Jesus or it can take me away from Jesus. And the question every day, and this is why I love practicing the presence of Jesus, but as I practice his presence, it helps me to recognize his presence in all things and be present with him so that I can worship. So, Father, as we come into this time of, of singing, as worship and of prayer, I, I just pray this morning, Lord, that like David in the Psalm 95, we would come and we would recognize our allegiance to you. We would recognize your greatness. We recognize who you are and who we are, that we would then bow down, God. We would choose you. Pray today for each of us, that Lord, you would, I just pray you would highlight the areas, God, where we have competing interests of worship. And I pray, Father, you'd continue to give us a heart that chooses you. And God, when we don't choose you, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your conviction take that thing off the altar of our heart and just place you back there and worship you again. That's the beauty of it, God. So we can always return. So Jesus, have your way.